He is risen. Amen. It's great to be with you this morning. God bless you. My name is Rick Martinez. I am one of the elders here as well. We are going to tag team this morning. I'm going to run the first leg of this race with a baton, and then Matt's going to, I'm going to hand it off to Matt. We are running with endurance the race that is set before us. I want to look this morning at two texts briefly. The first is in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, and I believe it will be up there on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible, or even if you do, you might want to read it there. Two very short texts that I want to look at. Acts 1.3 says this, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He presented himself alive to them. And the next text is in Revelation chapter 1, which we are studying on Sunday mornings prior to our service through the book of Revelation this year. Revelation 1.18 says this, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I died and behold, I am alive. And I love it. And in both these texts, the word alive is prominent. The word alive is at the center of the thought of what is being spoken. Father, in the name of Jesus, we worship you this morning. And what a joy it is to gather together and to worship you. And as Matt said, Lord, though we live in the present risenness of Christ every day, to take the time and to consider and to ponder and to meditate and to bask in the glory of these truths is a privilege, and we thank you. May you be honored today, Lord Jesus. You are worthy. In your name we pray. Amen. It's strange how eternal life often seems unnatural to us, even as believers. Because we're looking at it, we're thinking about it from our current perspective and from our present existence and our temporal lives. And we're aware of our fragility and our vulnerabilities and our aging processes that we go through. And so it's, it's not uncommon for eternal life to be almost an unnatural thought for us. But we need to remember, and I know we do, that this was God's original design for man. Death is unnatural because man was made for immortality. And Genesis chapter 2 teaches us that clearly. So death is the denial and the reversal of the true law of creation the way that God created man and intended for man to live. Death is the denial and the reversal of what God intended. And Jesus Christ in these two verses reveals himself as the overcomer of death. As I was reading this this text in Acts 1, I was struck by the, the language of it and Luke reminding us and telling us that Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples. And we can, we can read that very casually, which we often do. We'll read it very readily, and we'll think, of course. This is post-resurrection. He's presenting himself alive to his disciples. But we have to understand the importance and the significance of that statement. 
Because you see, at this point, his disciples were not bold men of faith. John tells us in his gospel that Peter had actually decided to go back to his old way of life. He just went back to what he was familiar with, what he was comfortable with, his his fishing, which he was, listen, secure with. Mark tells us in his gospel that when the Lord Jesus appeared to them, even though they already knew that he had risen, that's important, he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Luke tells us in his gospel, not in the book of Acts, but in his gospel, that when he appeared to them, again, even though they knew that he had already risen, they were startled, they were troubled, and they were frightened. And I thought, how true this is of much of the church today. We fill churches on Resurrection Sunday, which is commonly known as Easter, to the world. And yet, too many times, and I'm speaking in my own life as well, The churches have within them people that are frightened and troubled and unbelieving and at times even hard-hearted who so easily slip back into their old way of living. Why? Why is it? It should not be so. Why is it that way? Because we may not have grasped the power and the meaning of Revelation 1's words that Jesus spoke when he said, Fear not, I am the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death, of of death and Hades. Jesus presented himself to his disciples, I believe, for two primary purposes. The first was to encourage them and to strengthen them, and then secondly, to commission them. And so it is for us today, as we consider this truth, that Jesus is alive. Because Jesus has presented himself to us as well. And I would have to say for my own life with many proofs. Amen. So we celebrate today the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A truth that has been confirmed to us just as it was to the disciples with many proofs. We have been delivered. I have been delivered from sin and addiction and bondage and fear And I've been born again, and we have been born again to a new life that is tangible. It's measurable. It can be experienced. It can be known. Amen. We have joy and peace in our hearts and minds in spite of what may be happening in the world around us. And we have seen the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in our own lives, through our lives, and in the lives of others as well. But as important as those truths are, it is because Jesus has presented himself alive to us, that's an important truth. Even more importantly, it is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes powerful an even more and possibly more important truth that we would read later in the book of Revelation chapter 21 For those that would put their trust in him, Jesus says this of them, there shall be no death. Say that with me. There shall be no death. The 
The Lord Jesus would reiterate this truth to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2. When he says to them, again, he uses the word behold. He says, behold, I am alive forevermore. What does he mean by that? I think he means I am the living one, and I am living into the ages to come. What does that mean? Very simply this, the son, listen, has eternal life in himself. John writes, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus has eternal life in himself, and he's able to give that life to those who believe on him. And that's why Jesus would say to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Familiar texts to us. Jesus is the life. Not only does he have life, not only can he give life, he is the life. He alone has immortality, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he offers it to those who come to him. But what we are celebrating today is that this future life, this eternal life, is not just something for the future. It's not just a future promise, but it's given to a person the moment, the instant that they're regenerated, that they're made alive, that they're born again. Speaking to Martha at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her, do you believe this? And I say to us this morning, do you believe this? Yes, we do believe this. And that begins to dictate our outlook on life, the way that we live, how we think in a very real way. During his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus demonstrates this again and again and again, that he is the life, that he has life within himself. A very simple example is the healing of the lepers. The law of Moses stated that they were unclean. They were to be separated from others. They were to cry out unclean and stay on the other side of the street in order to warn other people of their presence. To touch a leper or even their clothing you became not only ceremonially unclean, but very possibly at the very risk of disease, serious disease. It was unthinkable to touch a leopard. It was against the law to touch a leopard. Yet when lepers approach the Lord Jesus for healing, Jesus puts his hands on them and touches them. He does the unthinkable. And instead of Jesus getting leprosy, they got healed instantly. Why? Because Jesus is the life. It's impossible for him to be defiled. Instead, his life-giving power went out to others as he healed them, as he performed miracles. It was his life going out to others bringing restoration even to the dead. In Mark 5 and in Luke 8, the account of the young girl, the ruler, the ruler's child who was dead, and she was healed by the Lord Jesus, and he says to her very simply, little girl, 
arise. And she came back from the dead. In Luke 7, the account of the widow and her son, her only son, who was being carried in the coffin to be buried. And Jesus, seeing the woman, was filled with compassion, Luke tells us. And he went up to the coffin and he said to him, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the young man sat up. And of course, in John 11, Lazarus. Jesus said to him, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. In each example, the Lord Jesus, this is amazing to me, is speaking to the dead as though they were alive. And they came to life. And as they did, Jesus demonstrates what we are celebrating today and what God would want to put deep in our hearts that we would continue to remember and continue to know that Jesus Christ has power over even death. But the primary demonstration that Jesus within himself had this life, that he was the life, that he is the life, is found in his own resurrection from the dead. In John 2, Jesus says this, destroy this temple, and in three days, listen, I will raise it up. And in John 10, he said, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So not only would Jesus rise from the dead, but he himself would be the agent of his resurrection. He is alive. He is the living one. He is the life, present tense. I thought about this this, this week. I was thinking about, we don't speak about Jesus Christ in past tense. It's present. He is. It's okay to say he was when he was on the earth. But when we speak of him now, it's always he is. And I thought about that as well of people that we've loved who have, who have gone on to be with the Lord. When I speak of them, I, I, I still in my mind am thinking present tense because they live evermore. We remember them as they were, yes, but the reality is if they are in Christ, they are. They are alive. Amazing, amazing truth. To the Lord Jesus Christ belongs absolute being as opposed to relative being of the, cre of the creation. With who has a life, the creation which has a life, but it's not really life because it inevitably falls under the dominion and the corruption of death. As soon as life is separated from Christ, it becomes death. To be separated from Christ is to not really be alive. Though your body may be functioning, the Bible teaches that it is death. And Jesus uses the word behold often when he speaks of this life because he's demonstrating that this life is beyond this grave, beyond the grave. And it speaks of something that is greater and that is of greater importance for the church. It bears witness that those who trust in him will also rise from the dead. 
And if it were not for that fact of the resurrection, Christianity would be meaningless, Paul says. We of all people would be the most to be pitied. Can you imagine wasting your whole life on something that's not true? Giving your whole life to something that's not true. Putting all of your eggs in one basket that has a hole in it. Such it would be if it was not true that Christ raised from the dead. And as I close with these thoughts, may the Lord speak to us. It is because that Jesus is the living one that he has the keys of Hades, of hell, and death. Keys, speaking of authority, he has the authority over the power of hell, or Hades, and over the power of death. And his resurrection turned the key. It turned the key in the gates of hell, and it turned the key of death, liberating us to eternal life and those who would believe to eternal life. And our liberation gives us freedom from the power and the bondage and the fear of death. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Isn't it amazing that it was through death that Jesus destroyed death. Only God could do that. Only God could have such a plan. That through death, I will destroy death. Kat, you and the team can come back up now if you like. So we remember this today as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. That we celebrate and we remember two great truths as believers that Jesus Christ has presented himself to us alive. And that Jesus Christ is the living one and that he lives forevermore. And we who have put our faith in him will also live evermore. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for the power of very simple statements such as Luke's in Acts 1 that Jesus presented himself alive. And I pray today for any who would be here today who do not know you, who have not come to faith, that Lord, today, as only you are able to do, you would present yourself to them as alive from the dead. Be honored and glorified among us today, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. He is alive, is he not? He is alive. You can be seated. Therefore, because Jesus is the living one, because he has presented himself alive to us today, what must we do then with this radical truth? What is our response in light of this? Turn with me to Acts chapter 1 as Rick already read from the beginning. I want to continue in Luke's thought in Acts chapter 1. The resurrected life of Jesus presented to us, made alive within us, having its effect 
upon us. Think about that for a moment. The resurrected life of Jesus Christ has had an effect upon your life if you've put your faith in Him. What an awesome, awesome truth that is for us today. Is it that we might just live for ourselves? Or perhaps is there something in addition to the plan of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It was so that we might be witnesses of this resurrected life to the world around us, that we would be image bearers of the true and perfect image to a world around us. How do we know this to be true? Acts chapter 1, following what Rick had read in verse 4, looking at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but this is the key, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. See, this is the double-edged sword of new creation life. What Rick spoke of, the powerful resurrected life of Jesus Christ having its effect upon us, the light, the life bearing its life upon us, but what we do in return with that light and with that life. This was God's plan, that you will be my witnesses, he says. In other words, he says to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Don't worry about the when and the what of how I'm going to do what I'm going to do. But, he says, but you will receive power. Why? To be witnesses. In other words, he says, don't worry about the when or the what, but it's the why and the how that I'm going to show you. It's the why and the how that I'm going to show you. In the early 2000s, um, there is a, there's a, an author and a speaker by the name of Simon Sinek, and he gave this TED Talk that was really wonderful. I listened to it a few years ago, and it's How Great Leaders Inspire Change. And in it, he talked about the single most powerful question that any organization can ask itself is why. Why? Why do we do what we do? Why is it that we are in existence? When, when we answer the why, when the why becomes the most dominant thought, when it becomes the predominant question that we ask ourselves, everything else is filtered through that lens. And as I listened to it this day, it was like 18 minutes long. I went, he wasn't talking about faith, of course. He was talking about organizations and such. But I thought to myself, as a Christian, we have the most obvious why presented to us. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The why is the resurrection life made manifest within us as Christians. That is the why. And how simple it is when that becomes our main thing, in a sense. It's simplified. God's intention was never to make it this difficult thing to grasp. Instead, it was to be something simple. I have made you alive. Now, therefore, you go and you speak and you be my witnesses of that light and of that life. So our why is simple. It's those that he came to save. 
That's what he's speaking of here in Acts chapter 1. The why. It's, it's the Judea. It's the Jerusalem. It's the Samaria. It's the ends of the earth. That's the why. Well, how, what's the how? The how is the power of God, the Holy Spirit indwelling that would soon come. The aim of resurrection life is outside of ourselves. It is not just for us. As wonderful as that is, it's like a coin though, or as I said, a double-edged sword of new creation life. It's for us. It's inward facing, but you guys, it's outward facing as well. There's a reason why you have been made alive, and it's not just for your own personal benefit. As much as God loves you, as much as God wanted to show his grace and his mercy manifest through your life, it was for something greater, for something greater. Just as Christ's crucifixion was for the world, so too is his resurrection for the world. Yes, we're being changed into his likeness. Yes, by the power of his spirit, we're being transformed, as the Bible calls us to be sanctified in our knowledge of Christ Jesus. Our wills are being conformed, but this was always purposed to be done as a witness to an onlooking world. But see, God knew that it wasn't enough just to call us, but he, has to, he had to also equip us. He had to give us what was needed. That which he began, he would finish, and he would equip us to finish. So as Rick spoke of so wonderfully, the cross has provided for us the how. The cross is has shown to us in our own personal lives of of what it is to be, what this truth is that we are to speak of as witnesses. His ascension, his going, it was imperative to the why mission of the gospel. He had to leave earth. He could not remain. Because why? He was a man. But in order to go to the ends of the earth, he must send his Holy Spirit, which would indwell each and every one of us to be those image bearers, to be those ambassadors for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to give you three reasons this morning on why he has empowered us by his Holy Spirit to be witnesses. First is the power for victory over sin. This is the inward-facing aspect that Rick alluded to and spoke of a moment ago. It's the inward facing, it's the personal application through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have victory over our sinful flesh. That's one of the benefits of being in Christ. It's one of the benefits of resurrected life. The power of sin has been made to lay low in our life. We know that Titus says, for the grace of God has appeared, the grace of God, Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people, training us, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope as we just sang the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's Titus chapter 2. We know that text well. 
What a beautiful summary of the purpose of God in Jesus Christ. To purify for himself a people. To train us by God's grace to say no. To be, have victory over sin in our life, over our fleshly man. The grace of God has appeared today. If you struggle with something, the grace of God has appeared today for you in that area. And not just for that, that you might be purified and united to his church as part of his body. And I love how it ends here, people who are zealous for good works. It doesn't just end with the huddle and cuddle of the church, but it's the good works. It's the being sent. It's the going out. You will be my witnesses. We've been empowered for victory over sin. The second reason that the Holy Spirit has empowered us, and this is so important, effective gospel proclamation. You have been empowered that you might speak of the transformative life of Christ that is within you. And he says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. That's the outward facing aspect of the resurrection in our life. We have been given power by the Holy Spirit to proclaim to the ends of the earth the mystery, as Paul says, the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations. And then he says what? But now is revealed to his saints. The mystery that was hidden has been revealed to you and to you and to you and to all of us who are in Christ Jesus. Why? So that we could marvel at it? Yes, to a degree. But no, that we would take it, that we would speak of the mystery that has now been revealed. Of course, we know this mystery is, is the grace in Christ Jesus. I think sometimes we have to realize the great privilege that it is to be called in Christ. And we ask, you know, when we hold that, that sense of reverence and awe that it's done in humility, we always have to remember it's not us who gained it, but it's solely a work of Christ so that no one could boast, right? But we sit and we marvel at what a privilege it is to have this mystery revealed to us. It's now for us to be heralders, proclaimers, declarers, inciters of the gospel. Yeah? The third reason that we've been given power, and this is important as well, is for power for victory over Satan and demonic forces. I was reading in preparation for this week, and I was struck by John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 4. He says this, and, this, and Rick used this a moment ago, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. But then he immediately switches tenses, and he says this, the light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. So on the one hand, it's speaking of Jesus, in him was life, and Jesus was the light, and was life. And then it comes to present, and it says, and the light shines in the darkness. Jesus Christ, the light, shines. How does he shine? Through us, through you, through the beauty of the gospel spread as we open our mouths, as we live our lives, as we raise our children, 
as we care and love for one another. The light of life shines through us today. If you feel darkened and dampened, do not be dismayed. You cannot quench the light. The light of Christ shines through you. That's the purpose of God through his church, to shine the light. What a privilege it is to take part in that. The glory of the Lord shines through his church. The glory of the Lord is revealed through his church. It's declared through his church. It's proclaimed through his church. He is alive and he lives. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. This is the victory over Satan and demonic forces. The light shines in the darkness. But we have divine power. We have divine power. What? Why? Because the Holy Spirit indwells you. You don't have anything other than what He gives you. But what He's given you is great. But we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We destroy arguments. We don't battle them. We destroy them. I love the language. It's because the victory's been won. He's already accomplished it in the eternal sense. Now we know we wait and we do battle because we have not yet come to glorification and been perfected. But He's given us what we need by His Spirit. We destroy arguments. We don't fight them. Why? Because greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. So while the Christian life is one of significant personal transformation, which it absolutely is, the profound work of the completion of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our life. It is deep and profound, and that is what we gather to study and to worship and to sing of and to marvel at. While it is that, we must not lose sight of the fact that the life of the Christian is always outward-facing. It's always this direction, reflecting the nature, the beauty, the love, the mercy, the justice. God, does this world need justice? Reflecting the justice, the forgiveness, and the transforming power of Christ Jesus the Lord. That is the life of the Christian. That's the life of you and I. And I pray that today we would be so firmly planted as Christians in this place of surety, both of what he's done for us but what he will do and is doing through us because his light shines in the darkness through this church, through you as individuals, through you as families, to the glory of his name.